Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, more senseless gun violence. A gun shooter takes out another victim in Oregon. We talk about the students in Seattle and the police officers in Las Vegas. More fallout and even more questions from the Bergdahl Prisoner Exchange. More fallout from the VA scandal as the IG issues a report. Children in crisis on the southern border of the United States. Hillary Clinton's got a book, but apparently she can't buy it. She's broke. This, and tell me a story, all this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, ironically, he is the somewhat injured with a big glove on his hand, the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation, former Ford Chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford, is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. I hope my hand will recover by next week. I, I, I too hope so. And joining me to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland, longtime Washington insider Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And to my 1 o'clock across the table, ironically far away from the spoken crusted microphone of backroom politics, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce, longtime Senate staffer, and a very distinguished, handsome, and factual fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And back from the wilds to my right, ironically, from North Dakota and there about the wild frontier. He is long-time political consultant and attorney here in Washington, D.C. He is the uh, Honorable Dan Lipner, Esquire. Dan, how you doing? Welcome back. Glad to be here, Justin. I may have brought you a prairie dog back. Oh, that's what we need. That's what we need. And joining us remotely today, ironically, back from whatever West Coast Valhalla he was in, he is the former congressman from Washington 2nd Congressional District, former Vice President of Government Affairs for Burlington Northern Railroad. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hey, Congressman. Hi, it's good to be back. It's, well, we, we miss you here. It's been three weeks. We don't know what to do. Bob's lonely. Damn right. <laughs> well, j- just picture me with a little less hair, and uh, you, you've got it. Oh, God. I can, can only imagine. Hey, we've got, a lot, we've got a lot to talk about today. But first, we're going to, we want, we're going to start off with uh, breaking news that's going to tie into our first subject. Uh, there's breaking news coming out of Oregon. Uh, earlier this morning, uh, a individual armed went into a high school 
just outside of Portland. Uh, CNN and several other authorities are reporting that, in fact, a, this gunman shot a student. That student was killed. Uh, there is now reports coming out, according to CNN, that the individual gunman has also been killed. Uh, there, it is still a very fluid scene out there in Oregon, but this also ties into last week's shootings out on the West Coast in Washington State, Al, out in your territory, at Pacific Coast yep. University, as well as over the weekend, uh, two for lack of a better word, very deranged individuals uh, shot two police officers while they were having lunch in Las Vegas. This, is, this brings up a whole, whole new realm. Now, Alan, Alan Moore pointed out last week, or, or before the show, that this is a subject that we talked about two weeks ago. However, as moderator, I still think this is now the point where we have in as many days Within a week, we have just senseless gun violence in, in three out of four days. On top of the fact that we have, just after the mass shootings out in California, the whole point of this is, number one, we now should have a logical discussion about gun control in this country. This is out of hand. Now, we can talk about... We can talk about the mental health issues, how we deal with mental health. These are people, obviously, with mental health issues. But the reality is, is that guns are prevalent in our society. At some point, when do we sit down and talk about a logical, sensible way to stop these shootings from happening? That bottom line. Uh, Bob, I want to start with you. I, I mean, you know, obviously, I am fired up because two cops just having lunch were shot in cold blood by two deranged individuals out in Las Vegas. Uh, these, are, these were right-wing, self-proclaimed nationalist Tea Party people. These are, um, these are people that, that, that truly had a, a, a very ugly, ugly idea about government. But the fact is they used gun violence to make their statement. Bob... When do we start sitting down today and have Congress sit down and say, look, this has got to end? Well, it's, it's, we all, I think, would consider it's well overdue. Uh, it has been difficult on Capitol Hill and in any place else you're looking for, for the, the folks who want a, a good registration program. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the uh, gun show loopholes are problems. There are all kinds of reasons why there are too many guns out there and, and too many crazy people who get a hold of them. And, uh, I, you know, I have for, for a long time have thought that we ought to have a registration program. The NL, NRA is absolutely strong against it. They have a lot of friends on Capitol Hill. Um, and the, uh, the Second Amendment, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, there's a uh, recent uh, book by a former member of the Supreme Court of the United States. And he suggests five or six amendments to the Constitution to bring it more up to date. And one of his suggestions uh, is exactly in this area. We can talk about that more in detail later. But the fact of the matter is, we have a situation in this country where it's too easy to get a gun. There is not enough uh, control to know, understand how the people buying guns have the stability to, to own a gun. 
and uh, it is so easy to get a gun that we find these young people are, 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 who are obviously uh, ill in one way or another just going around shooting people for the hell of it. Well, Congressman Al, uh, you know, obviously at, at Seattle Pacific University out in your neck of the woods, this is obviously something that hits home, but when, when a 19-year-old freshman student at his, what is largely looked at as a very peaceful, very, uh, you know, very open campus out there at SPU, this 26-year-old, and I don't want to mention this individual, I don't want to give him any more press, but comes in with a legally acquired gun and literally starts senselessly shooting people at, and from indications coming out of the, uh, the Seattle media, just had no motive and admitted to just doing this. Does this not give a wake-up call at least to your delegation, your former delegation, if not the rest of Congress? This is the time that we have to start seeing kids killed in senseless gun violence? It certainly should. Uh, Washington State is uh, is filled with hunters, uh, and uh, so it makes it very very difficult. But I, I've always thought that the people who want to bring some rational regulation to guns miss the boat by never really cha challenging the NRA on their basic argument that they're going to take your guns away. I've never heard a responsible person in this whole debate ever say, let's take all their guns away. And what happens is that I think most Americans probably would not be for uh, stripping gun owners of their guns. Uh, they want some regulation, but not going that far. Uh, yet, uh, by, by letting the NRA continue to trot that out as the scare tactic that they use, uh, and without challenging it, leaves the impression with many, many people that they really are out to take their guns away, and they don't want that. I think the, uh, the gun uh, regulators should make it a point of, of saying we are not going to take your guns away, absolutely not, and they should say it every time this happens, uh, and to begin to get a... a ground on which we can talk rationally about what kinds of regulations we should have, which what we shouldn't have, and so forth and so on. Uh, Carl Tubin. Yeah. Well, first of all, some states have mental background checks. Others don't. <clears throat> I think if, if we're going to put together a good gun bill, that we need to, to have as part of it the mental background checks, because most of these people have been deranged or mentally unfit in some way or other. Uh, uh, <clears throat> people can buy and own as many guns as they want. Uh, maybe there should be some sort of a, um, um, a number. You know, you can have three guns, four guns, two guns, whatever. Also, guns are so damn easy to get. Uh, coming down here, they, they say that you can buy a gun over, over Facebook. Uh, and, and other places like that. But Alan Moore, when we talk about the gun rights, we talk everybody, the NRA and everybody who's pro-gun rights brings up the Second Amendment. It is a constant challenge to the Supreme Court to interpret in a way that's going to make everybody happy, and it doesn't seem that we can find middle ground in all of this. 
but we have the gun. We have the gun. We have the opponents of the NRA who say that the Second Amendment is very clear. A well-regulated militia being considered that the, the people do have the right to bear arms as long as they're part of a well-regulated militia. Yet the gun rights say, no, 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 no. We have the right to bear arms, militia or not, to protect the security and sovereignty of the United States. That's every individual's job. Is, is, is there a middle ground here that somebody can at least try to find? All right. Well, a couple things first. One, it's not the job of the Supreme Court to find an answer that will please everyone. That's not what they do. They interpret the law as they see it. Secondly, I wanted to see you, you made a comment when you were introducing what, what the, the, the crazy couple in Las Vegas who shot police, the, the, the two policemen. You referred to them as national, nationalist Tea Party people. As far as I know, there is no connection between them and the Tea Party. They were a crazy couple who went out and with their guns hung around the, uh, the, 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 the cattleman, the rancher, uh, and basically uh, were interviewed on TV threatening the authorities. They are police haters. They are They're authority, government haters. They are, They're government they are haters. authority haters, but particularly in their mind, apparently, it's the police who symbolize what's going on. So to, to refer to them as nationalist Tea Party people, I think you've got to be careful because there are people Have you who, spent time who, with the Tea Partiers, Alan? <laughs> we're not talking about the Tea Partiers in general. We're talking about whether this couple of crazy killers, now dead, uh, having killed themselves after killing these police, were, in fact, nationalist Tea Party people. I don't even know that there is something called a nationalist Tea Party. No, no, no. I'm, using, I'm, using, their own, tea I'm using their own quotes. They, they were nationalists, and they were, active, according to their words, active supporters of the Tea Party. And that's those, are, those are their words. I'm not making right. this up. Probably but the reality is, on top of that, on top well, what of that, you're, what you're making up is the notion of a nationalist Tea Party. No, no, no. I don't think no, there is that. such a thing. No, I think you've got to be really careful with with how you use these words and how you describe people. Well, they they describe the, they describe themselves as this. But wait, wait, wait. Let, let me go back. Let me go back. I don't think they describe themselves as nationalist Tea Party. They, they describe they describe themselves, okay, according to several sources, including the AP and including Las Vegas media sources. They describe themselves as nationalists. They describe themselves as active supporters of the Tea Party. When they killed the cops, they draped flags, a Tea Party don't tread on me flag, which they, which they actively used in their media postings, their blog postings, on one of the deceased uh, victims. They also put a SWAT sticker. I'm not justifying. I don't, I'm just using their words. I, I, no, no, no. You are combining their words and in so doing besmirching a lot of people who associate with the Tea Party. I don't happen to be one of them. How often um, does the Tea Party well, hold actually... On, hold, on, Alan, 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 hold on, hold on. Dan, I'll get to you in a second. Let Alan finish. I'm just saying that, that there's... There's not one Tea Party. There is no nationalist Tea Party. There's a bunch of people who call themselves Tea Partiers that are loosely affiliated all over the country, and they do very different things in different places. Okay. So let's just let's let's not merge okay. everyone. Everybody, no, no, no. I, I absolutely. Some 
Tea Party affiliation that, that, that I will agree. as being somehow part associated with these killers. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Alan, I will agree to that. I use their own <laughs> words, and I should have put quotes around that. This is not to say that all members of the Tea Party are crazed cop killers. That is not to say that all people with nationalist feelings are crazed cop killers. That I will agree with you at, and Alan, I, I, I will take back that remark. But what I will say, though, is you have a situation where these individuals identify themselves as such, using their words, that's their choice, but that is how they wanted to be known. That is how they put themselves out to be known. And when the cattleman <laughs> says, hey, you're too right-wing crazy even by my standards, get off my land, that says something. That says to me at least that there are Tea Party members that don't associate with people like this. There are also left-wing people who don't associate with people like this. And, and, and I agree with you on that. Now then, however, that being the case, though, these people were trying to make a statement, though. Those people, well, not only were they trying to make a statement, there's a long, long list of people making the statement that may not have followed through to this extent, but at the may not have? Did not. Fair enough. <laughs> however, however, you have to agree. All the fair number of lunatics they're showing up with their AR-45, their AR-47, AK-15s, or AR... Whatever. Whatever. With their assault weapons slung over their back as a deliberate attempt to intimidate people who are peacefully showing up to at, at events. This is deliberately an intimidation tactic. Now, you cannot suggest that there is that much distance for those people claiming that they are just showing off their Second Amendment rights in such a way to physically intimidate with those weapons. And, and this is where I'm going to take the larger point here, with that Second Amendment right, let's go back to one ahead of that, the First Amendment right. And after McVeigh, and I'm, I'm deliberately conflating this, so bear with me, with all of the right-wing crazy rhetoric that was going on at the time when, when the Oklahoma City bombing occurred, there was one great line that said, with the freedom of speech, there also comes a duty to speak. And when the lunatics are speaking up, even the people of good conscience that are on the same side have a duty to speak up. And when G. Gordon Liddy was talking about the jackbooted government thugs coming on your, on your doorstep and shooting them in the head, the silence was deafening from the right. People not critiquing and not judging and not speaking up against that kind of rhetoric. Violent speech does have an effect, especially on the weak-minded, as these people clearly were. Alan Moore. <coughs> I don't, I, I'm not sure what you want me to do with that. I'm not, you know, we can d debate that whole issue. I don't have a problem with that. A lot of people don't know who... G. Gordon Liddy was. I was no G. Gordon Liddy fan. I'm, I'm no fan of people who march around with, uh, with their guns, as we've said around this table as recently as two weeks ago at some length. Um, I think we all believe there should be more extensive background checks on gun ownership, um, but, but we, we, also recognize, well, we also recognize that when you dissect individual cases, you discover, oh, he got these guns illegally. Oh, he bought these guns in California, where they actually have a, a fairly um, 
uh, aggressive background check system. And 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 then when we, I, you know, I'm no, def- I'm not a member of the NRA. I'm no, uh, but I I always love it when our target here is the NRA rather than the voters who are members of the NRA or who support the NRA and who exert an enormous amount of power. It's not this little organization that does it. It's voters but, who are but behind that, it though, who are intimidating to members of Congress and the Senate. But, but, but Bob Hines, when we yeah. talk about the NRA, and, and I agree with that, that the responsibility is with the vote to at least come up with some sort of sensible solution to elect members of Congress that can have an intelligent civil dialogue about this, about this issue. But you have a large voting sector that follow the NRA religiously. When you get a B from the NRA, that's a death sentence almost for your political career in the minds of some voters. I experienced it out in Oklahoma. I've seen it in other, Texas is another area where we see this, where they follow the NRA as the gospel for their political beliefs. Does the NRA or the voter, which one should actually be called up to front to say, this is now the time? Uh, A few minutes ago, uh, Al Swift was, I thought, very correct when he said, we have got to make sure people understand that, you know, trying to control gun, you know, accessibility to all kinds of people is the real problem. Nobody's going to take everybody's gun away. That is a ridiculous idea in this country. The fact of the matter is, what we need to do is get some legislation enacted, which will require more careful and, uh, and rigorous examination of a person's ability to use a gun, to have a gun, and the kind of, the kind of person that person is, whether it's mental problems or whatever. We have a situation in this country where, and I would, I would suggest that every single case that we've been talking about today happens to be people who are clearly not normal and regular people in the common sense. They're all warped in some way. And I don't know why that is or how it is, but the fact of the matter is that's the kind of problem we have to get, we have to solve. And we also have to make sure that we have a system that says that you have got to be a law-abiding, good citizen, no, rec- no records of criminality, no, ne- no record of mental illness, anything else, then you can buy a gun. And I don't see why we can't find a Our way assault, to do that. But, but when, when you see groups in Texas walking around open carry with assault rifles, AK-47s, AR-15s, in walking into restaurants, public places, as a display of their right to bear arms, that to me, Carl Tuvin, says that is excessive in the argument. There is no reason that anybody can tell me that you need an AR-15 in open carry in a sling in public to, to say, this is my right. That to me is excessive. I agree with you 100%. Texas has a different kind of culture, unfortunately, than the rest of this country. They've been doing this for years and years and years. And it's going to be tough to break Texas of that habit. We should try. As far as legislation is concerned, 
<clears throat> we need to, there needs to be in Congress put together a good solid gun law that is feasible and, and is proper. And then, like, I get emails every day, sign this petition to pass this bill. We need to get a groundswell of people in this country to sign petitions, to go to their members of Congress, to, to, to make the point that we need this now. But the, but the people who are going to sign that petition, Alan Moore, follow the run of the NRA. Now, let me be clear in this, okay? I believe that the NRA does great work. They do great work in promoting sensible, practical, legal gun ownership. They provide great, great firearms education programs for youth, hunting programs. They are fantastic in this. But when it comes down to the question, in this case, of assault rifles, okay, high-capacity magazines, they, do they not have a responsibility to sit there and at least let the dialogue be brought and not try and shut it down in Congress? Well, <laughs> they don't have the power to, to shut down any, any old conversation at any time. We had an assault weapons, we had an assault weapons <laughs> ban of sorts for a while. It expired, and it, hadn't, it didn't work very well because there were all sorts of ways to work around it. Um, and I don't have any problem with an assault weapons ban that's more effective, that has more teeth in it. I don't have one. I don't have any interest in one. Uh, this tech, these Texas restaurants you're talking about, I wasn't aware that people were hauling their AK-47s in, strapped, hanging them on the wall. That's not a restaurant I want to go into. And it's really, it's really not a bar I want to go into. Um, and, uh, and those are... You know, those are issues that, that state and local governments uh, ha have control over. And it's, it's, you know, so there's the one, the, the, the fundamental issue of what you're allowed to own and whether there should be limitations. There are a few limitations, not very many. Um, and then who should be able to buy? It's tempting to say, wouldn't it be great if, you, if you've ever had mental illness, but how's that defined? Did you ever, you know, have some counseling? Uh, or see a psychiatrist and you're suddenly disqualified, that's really complicated. Criminal records are a lot easier, um, but uh, you know, there may be certain kinds of, of, uh, of mental illness, and I don't have any problem with, with, with uh, some, some ability to cross-check the kinds of, uh, of data that, that might exist about people's mental health, but that is hugely hugely controversial, not by people who are a little bit off and want to own a gun, but by people who have, have had serious problems, serious needs mentally, don't own guns. Congressman Al, let me ask you. You, you were in a, a very hunting-friendly district up there in Washington 2nd District. Uh, the yeah. NRA had a lot of sway in the way that your constituency voted. How strong is the voice of the NRA when it comes to political inside issues like this? The voice of the NRA is huge. I don't know of a special interest group that has the kind of clout that the NRA has in any area. Now, the, here's, here's something that's misunderstood. They, people blame the NRA and all of its lobbyists and the money it spends. <clears throat> that's not the problem. They've got a membership that is hungry for this, and it's a membership that doesn't need much suggestion for it to get very, very active in elections. 
they will be one-issue voters, and they will just label anybody who is for any kind of restriction on guns uh, as uh, a commie, simple, pinko, you know, <laughs> the old line we used to get. Uh, and if you just listen to some of them, some of the things that have been broadcast in the last two or three days from Texas, people swaggering into bars with their guns on their hips and and all of that nonsense. <clears throat> you got to take them seriously if you're running for office because they will vote and they will vote against you and they will work against you. Uh, and so you... You, you cannot underestimate the clout of the NRA. What you also cannot overestimate is the guts of the people that are hired, that are elected to, to do. Somebody ultimately has to talk sense, as you, that was your original point. <clears throat> Who's going to stand up first out of the 535 people on the Hill? Uh, I'm not going to hold my breath. Bob Hines, I can understand why people on Capitol Hill don't, you know, don't want to do do anything here because the NRA, as Al says, is is just uh, it's a very powerful organization. That cannot be the last word unless we are prepared to have this continuous situation where Looney Tune people who have got guns do crazy things for whatever reason comes into their clouded minds, and I think. We have a terrible problem here. It's, you know, it's not a matter of, of, of it's happening once in a while. It seems to be happening almost continuously on a regular basis. Someplace or another, there's always a couple of people doing crazy things and going out and killing people for no reason at all. It makes no, no blanking sense, and it strikes me we have to find a way, and I don't know how to do it, but we've got to find a way to uh, protect the normal citizens in their daily life from people running around with weapons shooting people. Dan Lipner. Well, going back to what Alan was talking about earlier, and we're all basically in agreement that crazies were involved here. And the, this is a political show, so it would seem that the consensus issue would be mental, mental health. And despite Alan's statement about how complicated this is, uh, Cardiac surgery to remove those bullets is pretty complicated, too, but nonetheless, you still go to it and try. Um, there, there is a way, and mental, mental health is not taken seriously in this country in many fronts, even though it's tried. It's advanced greatly over the last 20 years from where it's been. It's still not where it should be. And to be clear, the NRA came out in favor of more mental health. Chris Christie came out in favor of looking at people to see if mental health was a way of tracking to prevent these kind of tragedies. These are voices on not the left, and the left has been crying for mental health uh, uh, care for, for decades. Now, if this is the common ground, and since there are actually more guns than people in this country, let's go with what we can do, and there seems to be at least agreement on one part of the problem. 30 seconds, I'll give you the last comment, Alan Moore. Yeah, yeah, let, let me just say, I totally agree on 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 looking hard on the mental health side because most of these people are in some way or other nutty. Sometimes we learn later that they were showing all kinds of signs, they said stuff, and so on. All I'm saying is there's nothing here that's easy. And in the world, in the world of, of, of mental health, 
that you've got to be really careful. That doesn't mean you don't do it. You're really careful. The real challenge here is to get everybody who cares, both parties and the NRA, interested and involved and willing to talk about common ground because there is some. There should be. I absolutely agree with you. Good last words. Okay, we've gone a little bit long. When we come back, we're going to talk about the fallout of the Bergdahl Taliban prisoner exchange. They went to Congress, and now Congress has even got more concerns and even more questions. This is Backroom Politics Live from Chili's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of, live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, uh, we're talking a little bit about the fallout from the uh, Bo Bergdahl Taliban prisoner exchange that happened a couple of weeks ago. We, we talked a lot about the details last week, but now we're talking about the political fallout. So Monday, yesterday, House of Representatives had a classified briefing from the White House, from the Defense Department, on the exchange. It, uh, it, it turned out to be a backfire for the Obama administration. Uh, it was more, cons- according to CNN, several lawmakers have, quote, more concerns over the deal now that it's been brought to light in a classified briefing. Uh, it didn't seem like many minds were changed after the classified bra- briefing, said CNN's Dana Bash. If anything, I have more concerns, quote-unquote, said Peter King, the uh, representative, the Republican representative from the state of New York. Probably, he went on and saying, probably the most distressing thing or the most disturbing thing I heard was at least 80 to 90 people in the administration were aware of the proposed deal, and yet they didn't notify Congress, unquote. Uh, it is a continuously bad situation for the White House. Alan Moore 
could this thing get any worse for the Obama administration? Was it? I mean, this was a poorly, poorly executed operation on behalf of the White House. Is that too much? You know, just about everything that could have gone wrong went wrong here, and it doesn't have to do with wanting to get our guy back. You know, they, they, what the White House kept doing is they thought they had a winner, which they didn't, so they created a celebratory atmosphere for something that wasn't a true celebration in that regard, and that completely backfired, and then they kept changing the story. Well, we ha he, was, he was hurt, we didn't have a lot of time. The Congress actually was aware, well, actually not. Um, we, we, we were worried about a leak occurring, um, so you can't, you can't have it both ways. We were worried about a leak. We could tell our congressman about, about our preparations to go after bin Laden, but we couldn't tell him about this. We could tell 80 or 90, or maybe it's a smaller number, of people in the administration, oh, and we could tell his parents, get them out here from Idaho. They could tell anybody that they wanted to, but we can't tell the, the, the majority, we, we can't tell the Speaker of the House, we can't tell the leadership of the key committees who know more secrets than we could ever imagine. It was each time the narrative was screwed up. And then they send Susan Rice out and talks about the honor and distinction with which the guys serve. And then it was, oops, maybe not so much. So I, I don't, I think we've run out of things that can go wrong. But oh, no, no, a, no, 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 there's still more, there's, there's still target, more that can go wrong. This is First a target-rich environment. I'm going to let the in-house administration apologist, Dan Lindner, <laughs> talk right now. Dan, go ahead and apologize for the administration. Well, first let me say... Say you're sorry. I, I, I want to say that, how does Susan Ray step into this twice? Yes. Yes. <laughs> does she not have somebody else go through her talking points? This is not her job, and twice she goes out there... Read the points from the administration and step she right into it. She is the administration. She's the national security officer. She writes them now. <laughs> she used to read them. Now she <laughs> writes <laughs> them. So, but that, that being that being that that being said, the, the parents happened to be in Washington for other reasons. They were not actually brought in you by the administration. You can't tell me <laughs> that these oh. people were brought yeah. in, Dan yeah. Lipner. Oh, yeah, they that, came in to oh go up God. in the... In the uh, in Wait a minute. The no, 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 right. There's right. another... There's so that affected the timing, then. Yeah. The parents <laughs> are here. Let's do it. They want to see the Washington <laughs> Monument reopened. Now, now let's, let's be clear <laughs> here. Let's be clear here. We're clear. We, we wanted to bring this kid home. The rollout was awful and should not have happened. As commander-in-chief, the president does have full authority, absent the regulation or non-regulation of Congress. He does actually have the authority to release prisoners of war. So, so wait a minute. I, wa I want this on record, though. Bo Bergdahl's father, who first of all walked out into the Rose Garden looking like American Taliban himself, <laughs> which if I'm the president... I'm giving this guy a razor and a haircut prior to media coverage. And a new suit. Yeah, but no, I am, I, I am not defending the White House communications office. Let me be clear okay, there. So, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Four days before this swap happens, according to the Washington Post, Bo Bergdahl's father tweeted the swap, directed a tweet at a alleged Taliban spokesperson, and tweeted, and I quote, this is according to the Washington Post, 
I am still working to free all Guantanamo prisoners. God will repay for the death of every Afghan child. Amen. That, to me, says, wait a minute. You're telling me that Bo Bergdahl's father knew, and Congressman Al, they didn't even have the courtesy to let Congress know. As a former member of Congress, how much, if you were still in Congress, would this send you over the edge in outrage? No. Uh, this is, this is a, a battle between, uh, between various arms of government. Uh, Congress always loves to rise up in holy wrath uh, when they think that its uh, prerogatives have been, uh, been uh, uh, prompt on. And I, 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 would say, I don't think it was the smartest thing to do on the part of the administration. But uh, the, the holy wrath that I'm hearing is, I think, uh, an exaggeration, an exaggerated Congressman, response. Congressman, let me ask you this question. President Obama, in his first term, signed into law a mandate that required the White House giving Congress 30 days notification prior to any prisoner swap unenforceable. Un wait, well, hold on, Counselor. Congressman, that to me says that if it passed and it was signed by the head of party, President Obama, that he would at least give the courtesy call maybe even 15 days in advance prior to this going on. It was his law, and it was Democrats that went on board with the law to begin with. Why doesn't the president uphold his own law? What do you mean it's the president's law? Uh, the presidents don't make law. Congress makes law. It's the Congress's law, and I'm not sure that you uh, have got it exactly right. Uh, but uh, in, in either event, I stand by the fact that I think uh, much too much is being made over, oh, my God, I'm shocked because the administration has done something without letting us know. Uh, name me an administration since George Washington that hasn't. Bob Hines? I'm not going to argue about the legality uh, of it or anything else, but you look at this, and here's uh, a situation that the president is dealing with, you know, it's a touchy situation. This is a, this is a young man who apparently has um, wandered away from his post. I don't know if he's a deserter or not. I'm not saying that. I don't have any idea. But, he, you know, four or five people were killed looking for him, his own colleagues, you know, and... So this is an unusual case. And instead of being smart, the president was not smart. What he should have done, he should have talked to the Intelligence Committee senior par party. Republican and Democrat in the Senate, Republican and Democrats in the House. There's about five or six people at least he should have been talking to. He should have talked to the leadership. He should have, made, he should have told people what he was going to do. Now, it seems to me that not doing that shows such an ineptness and an inability to understand how best to handle this matter is almost it's almost overwhelming it's almost like he said i think i'll stab myself in the back i don't understand at all how the white house does not have enough brains to orchestrate something that, that makes more sense to the public and he has just blown it completely carl tubin 
And I'm not against the fact that the guy is free. And I'm not against the fact totally that it, there's five people. It's communications failure. Uh, no, it's, uh-huh. no, no, it's no, the it's, president's failure. Carl Tubin. It's more than communications. Uh, I was reading an article <coughs> in um, a magazine uh, uh, last week that talked about the makeup of the National Security Council. And <coughs> where other presidents have had people who are skilled and educated in foreign policy, defense policy, all these other things. This Security Council was made up of two or three people that came out of the campaign. David Axelrod would drop in and out to see what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was bizarre. And there weren't, there weren't too many, it seemed to me, experienced people who know how to handle situations and know how to advise a president in that way. Alan and it Moore. was very discouraging to, to see that. Alan Moore. Yeah, they made, a, they made a deal that people will debate whether it was balanced or not. I don't think it was balanced. I think that we gave up too much for what we got. Uh, apparently back to 30 months ago, two and a half years ago, when there was some conversation about getting Bergdahl out and giving up some Taliban uh, uh, it, it incarcerated people from Guantanamo, it was in the larger context of if we could ever cut a big deal with the Taliban, here's some of the things that would be part of it. Um, there was pushback at the time about the, these particular five, unless, uh, unless it was part of a grand comprehensive thing. And then, so 30 months later, all of a sudden, those five guys... Um, two of whom are wanted by the UN for war crimes, um, big deal guys um, uh, are, are swapped. And then to, so it was controversial enough as a deal that, that for many of us was not a good trade. And then it was the, the broader strategy, the rollout, the communications piece, the, hey, let's celebrate bringing this guy home. Um, because, as was reminded last week, there have been many events around the country with veterans where there's an empty chair, and that was the Bergdahl chair because he was the only guy at that point of uh, uh, active uh, military who was being held. Um, the thought was, hey, we're going we're gonna to get kudos. Uh, actually, we're not because of the circumstances under which he left his post, and then this overkill and exaggerated circus-like atmosphere about how great it was, not telling the Congress, I don't care about the 30 days ahead. What the president did was, was contrary to the law, as, as Dan pointed out. It's not really enforceable, but it's contrary to the law. And, but 30 days, not very practical. How about three days? How about three hours? How about giving them a heads up? And, and uh, it, was, it was the kind of just dismissive attitude towards the Congress that was so completely avoidable. Go tell some people in Congress, get them on your side, rather than have them be pissed off that they knew nothing. Dan Lipner, there's no evidence that anyone in Congress ever gets on, on Obama's side. Let's be clear on this. At, this is, we're now six years into this administration. <laughs> if only Harry Reid weren't always in his pocket. <laughs> As far as the Republicans in Congress, the, the I mean, what's the saying? 
any Republican idea as soon as Obama likes it is now it's now off the table. Oh, I mean, tell this us something meaningful. Yeah. Don't talk in cliches. That's just garbage. You embarrass yourself by repeating that. <laughs> <laughs> name name an issue that that the Republicans have been okay with when Obama said, "Okay, I'll take your deal." Name one. I Violence. I don't, you know, none. My none, point none is made. My no, no. point is made. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Moderate, please, please jump in here. Please jump Obama in here. Obama never make your offers point. anything. Make your point no, no, he's accepted Republican moves. You have okay, to make your on. point with an example. Okay. Yeah. You what can't you? just say name one. You name one, and I'll tell you what's wrong with your example. Yeah. Cap and trade was a Republican idea. I mean, this is well off the topic. Well, it's off topic. Let me get back. Hold on, Alan Moore. Let me get back in it. We'll be with that. we'll be with Dan Littner in a second. Good Send Lord. Send him back to North Dakota. The Republicans don't have Republican ideas. They don't agree on anything. We don't have any ideas. That's true. Carl Tubin. The biggest thing, the biggest thing that came out in the last day, last couple of days was the fact that the administration thought that if they mentioned this to to the members of Congress, that there would be so much pushback. <clears throat> that they wouldn't be able to put to do the deal. Of course not, Carl. Because if any, if anybody with any even inch of an amount of experience in national security were to see this deal, they would sit there and go, "Wait a minute, this is idiotic." No, that's not true. That, that is not absolutely true. true. That is not true. That is not true. That is not true. But Carl, we're talking minute. about six or seven people. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The other thing I, that came into my the mind. The number was forty-five. Two, that excuse they wanted, me, Dan. The two people that the UN wanted are now out. Let the UN go pick them up and uh, and and do something with them. But, but Carl, Carl, you, when you look at this, <laughs> this is a great segment. Carl Dubin, I want to go back to you. We're going to do that in in America. <laughs> he, we released him from the federal yeah, prison. You guys go down. State, you want him? Send him. Send him. Yeah, send him. Go down to Mississippi and look for him. Hey, Yemen. Mississippi could use him. Send him the cutter. But Carl Tubin, when you look at this, when you look at, okay, now the facts, and even even more with the facts that are out now, you have an individual who allegedly abandoned his post, who allegedly went AWOL, who had allegedly not had, had or had had a bunch of contempt directed at his superior officers and the American government for the actions in Afghanistan, and you're going to trade him for five known Taliban senior officials, one of whom killed 2,000 people in his own country, including women and children, does that seem to me like a logical swap? Last week, I mentioned, I said in this program, that I thought there was something more, I was hoping that there was something more behind what they did than what has come out. I, I agree with you. Uh, I just, you know, it's. I just think it's uh, very, again, very bad planning on the National Security Council and all the people around the president. Dan Lipner. So right now we're. Let's all agree the communications rollout, all this stuff, is a disaster and ridiculous. And spiking the football does not involve an actual spike, which the White House choose, chose to use on themselves. Now in this case, though, how do you armchair quarterback? What would you have given to get this kid back? Now, the, the statement is true, and several people have said this. If we would have let this kid languish forever, what does Army recruiting look like for the next 20 years, that we actually do leave one of ours behind? 
That is not done. Our country does not do this. This is, we are the shining light on the hill. We are better than the rest. We actually will get our guys out. And there are, and, and, and I would argue, Dan, that there are other opportunities, other deals that could have been made that did not involve putting people back into circulation, known leadership that designed attacks that were designed to do nothing it's more than war in Afghanistan. It wasn't war. It was war in Afghanistan. They are not uniform armed combatants. They are terrorists. Let's be they clear. They are not terrorists. That they are by by definition a resistance force in their own country. You cannot use willy nilly the language of terrorism. And I'm tired of folks right. doing that consistently. It, it is terrorism is very a very distinct thing. And people fighting to remove an external force from their own country is something acknowledged even by the UN. We can, we can debate whether or not what they're fighting for is right or wrong, but we are actually occupying their own land. It, you, is their, justify, it is a law of war how, that is justifiable. How do you right. justify, or Bob lines first, and then I'll get to my point now. I agree with you, Dan, but on that point. They're not, they're not terrorists within their own country, they were, but they were fighting against their own government. Uh, trying to take over the place, and they were—they were actually running the place. Let's be clear. Yeah. Well, they're running whatever. We, I, they, they weren't the president and the government. They were. The they Taliban were, were, were running one, the show before we deposed them. Yeah. Now, they, the fact of the matter is that I think that it's, while I wouldn't call them terrorists, I would say this: you have a bunch of people who are uh, at least two of them were on the international, you know, bad guy list. At least two of them were mm -hmm. from the inter. I would have, but I would have, I would not have uh, refused to make a deal if I would have been in, in, in the position to make the decision. But I would have said to the, I would have said to the Taliban, okay, the people who are, you know, the, the other three that are not claimed to be identified to be international criminals, we're going to keep those. We're going to keep those guys, but the other guys can go for it. We'll give you them. Right. I mean, there, there are ways to do these things. We, it looks Why to me... Why those fine? It, no, no, it, it looks to be clear. Like, we only know what's, what's been reported. Obviously, this is still classified as far as what the, relation, what, what the exchange was and the negotiations were. But we do know, or at least what's been reported out, the initial number was 45 people released. These negotiations have been going on for years. The number I heard was three to five years is how long these negotiations are going yeah. on. And at a certain point... And this is that we are drawing down. We want to end this conflict. This is America's longest war. And at a certain point, we can no longer justify holding enemy combatants once we are no longer in combat in Afghanistan. The thing had to end. So the question is, what do you have negotiating? And, and the Taliban held down to these five. Carl Tuman. It's been reported that what they were trying to do is <clears throat> to try to make this deal so that they could then, if it was successful, which it isn't, that they could go on and try to deal with the Taliban or these other forces in a way that we could have negotiations with them. I mean, CNN quoted last week senior administration officials, plural, that this ties into the Obama campaign promise to shut down Guantanamo. He is basically using the auspices of bringing everybody home to meet a failed campaign promise that he gave in shutting down Guantanamo, which in my mind 
is not necessarily the right way to do it. You want to shut down Guantanamo, that's fine. You want to give due process to whatever moniker you want to put on these bad people in Guantanamo, do it. I have no problem with that. But don't do this deal without the consent of the elected officials that are the ones who invoke treaties. Again, at a certain point, somebody needs to stand up. And Congress, let, let's be clear, Guantanamo is a national embarrassment to our country. What was done there on our behalf, under the flag of all of us, it is not owned by any one citizen, it is owned by all of the citizens. And what was done in Guantanamo and holding all of those men there, sometimes tortured, again, under the flag that we all salute, was an embarrassment to all of us. Congress, in an amazing bout of fecklessness, chose to, chose to instead of standing up and saying, we can shut this down, we can create some kind of process to determine who the actual dangerous actors are, said instead, we're going to keep this open, we're going to keep funding it, but by the way, just making sure they don't actually hit actual U.S. territory proper, keeping them in, in Cuba, because under the offices that's something different. That Obama stepping up and actually trying to fulfill this promise that has been long overdue, but still an attempt. It's actually a bit of a profile in courage. There are, Alan, of, Carl there, there are a lot of people that are in Guantanamo that were kind of pushed in and picked up at the beginning of the war. Many of them uh, were not are not as bad. Or they're all bad, but they're 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 not as uh, they weren't in, in the leadership. They were kind of just picked up and put in Guantanamo. Alan Moore? At the beginning. Alan Moore. I, I'm intrigued here. You know, they sometimes say the best defense is a good offense. Just when, <laughs> you, when you got nothing going, they just go, go on offense. And what we just heard, when this whole thing was characterized as a profile in courage, when we all know it's a profile in stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but I love, the, I, I love the notion. It's like, come on, let's go for it. What I also like is some of the other... Some of the other comments that have come out, Harry Reid at one point, who was the only person who knew ahead of time by a few hours, said, good riddance to those Taliban guys. I'm glad to have them out of the country. I was like, what are you talking about? And then John Kerry, our Secretary of State, said, hey, yeah, we can't guarantee that they won't rejoin the fight, but just remember this, if they rejoin the fight, re they rejoin the opportunity to be killed. <laughs> oh, aren't we smart? Aren't we tough? Shining light on the hill. Having said that, Shining you know, light I will say with Dan, the president had to make a choice, had to make a decision. This was not an easy decision. I don't know if it's part of a long-range plan to close Guantanamo. I'm not buying into that. And even if it was at one point, I don't think it is now. Um, and and uh, it, none of this stuff is easy. It looks on the face to me to not be a good deal, just the swap. I said it last week, but but all this other stuff has turned it into this disaster that's going to live on and linger. And initially, even last week at this table, oh, the Republicans are mad. Oh, the Republicans, Republicans. It was like, oh, there's it not just, it's not it's just Republicans, Republicans anymore. You got, when you got Dianne Feinstein, mm -hmm. your chairman of intelligence, completely pissed off and apologized to. I mean, the senior staff says we made a mistake. The president over in Normandy, where he's trying to, to have serious conversations with the Europeans in honor, 
people who died on those shores, thousands of them, 70 years ago, is end up, ends up having to do interviews with Brian Williams and others, where all he does is say, well, back in Washington, you're amaz it's amazing what can be, be, be turned into politics. Man, this mindset that everything critical is simply politics is not healthy. You know, I'm trying. I know Carl's Carl's struggling, but I gotta call it. It's the top of the hour. It's five o'clock, which means time for half the hour. It's Carl, this is not a subject that's gonna go away. You're gonna have your time to speak. Trust me. Uh, but I do. I do want to say one last thing. As much as I pick file on the president, I will say this: the president has made successfully some very tough choices during his term as president in both times. I will say this, it is, we, we can armchair quarterback, it is not the easiest job in the world, it's probably the hardest job in the world, to be the leader of the free world. The reality is that I, I want it to be known that as Commander-in-Chief, he has certain rights, he's made decisions, good or bad, those are his decisions. But, that being said, when we come back, we're going to take pile on the administration more, it's more VA fallout. This one's getting even better. Well, you know what we haven't talked about one time? Benghazi. Ah, it's forgotten. We got other stuff. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back. Congressman, are you still with us? I'm still with you. All right. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the second hour of the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. And we're going to continue the big pile on the administration because just when you thought the VA scandal couldn't go what? No, it's back, and it's back with revengeance. So several of the committees have gotten together, the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, as well as House Veterans Affairs Committee, have come together and convened talking about the crisis at the VA. It started with a secret list that was whistleblown out of the, uh, the medical, VA medical facility in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and then it has just steamrolled into several, several other, other facilities. At last count, according to the Washington Post, there were 57,000 veterans that had not been scheduled and put on a secret list for their first initial treatment at VA medical centers nationwide. Uh, it, is a, it is a situation where in the past 10 years, uh, there were 23 deaths nationwide due to delayed health care, according to a report that was issued by the Office of Inspector General. The audit findings covering 731 different VA facilities, based on interviews and of staff members and patients, uh, said that a 14-day schedule is not attainable in the current system of the VA. The, it is a very, very, very bad situation inside the VA Health Benefits Program. The medical officers have all resigned. It cost General Shinseki, the former Secretary of Veterans Affairs, his job. But now, as we find the electronic health care system isn't working, the old records aren't working, and we're putting veterans' health at risk. Uh, last week, we had uh, uh, the, executive, the acting executive director of government policy for the veterans, uh, Vietnam Veterans of America on, uh, talking about his displeasure with the current situation at VA. But it seems here that there are more as a result of this OIG report that was just issued after a hearing yesterday. There are more issues. There are 216 site audit reports that were flagged for further review. Bob Hines, 
at what point does this now become out of control for the administration? <laughs> well, I'm not so sure it isn't already out of control. I mean, that Inspector General's report is out. I think we will see more and more problems uh, coming along. And we we, we got to remind ourselves, this has been a long time developing. It's not just the last couple of years. But this is something that is, is a, just a real tragedy in the United States. We, we've really got to fix it as quickly as we can because we're not... We're, Veterans deserve better than they have been getting. There's no question about it. And is the, the administration has one responsibility, as far as I can see, and that is to ensure that they get to the, they get as far as they have to go to get in to find all the problems, clean everything up, remove the administrative type people who have not been doing a good job, get the thing back together because this is a very very big blot on the government service to the to the, the veterans. But you have a situation, uh, Alan Moore, where the VA itself has put as part of its VA medical benefits program to veterans a timeline, a mandatory timeline, that they must receive their initial consult within seven days. And it, uh, according to the GAO, the, it has to be the treatment should be completed or at least either referred out or closed within 90 days. The GAO went out and found that 80, 57%, 86 out of 150 consults were done, but only 28% of the consults were done within the 90 days. You're talking a 19% consult closure rate inside a VA program that's already overburdened. This is a scathing report coming out of the GAO, and we haven't even gotten to the OIG's report, Alan. Okay. <laughs> Once the floodgates opened, we're watching more and more stuff. Um, you know, we're, we're now filling in the details on what was so bad that the Secretary, General Shinseki, had to, uh, to step down. And now we're filling in the details. The question is, okay, who will be the new who will be the new secretary? What power will he have? Just this last week, um, uh, the, the the main Democrat in the Senate, Bernie Sanders uh, from Vermont, who's the chairman of the Veterans Committee, and uh, the key Republicans um, who have been working on some VA reform, came to an agreement. It was a major step back for what what. Uh, what Senator Sanders was proposing. He had a $20 billion plan to open new facilities, expand uh, some access to, to the private sector, increase benefits. It was a very, very ambitious, uh, highly political uh, approach that Harry Reid had promised uh, a vote on, and then uh, all of a sudden the, the, a deal got struck that made some sense because there was a group of re Republicans who said, look, for temporarily, we need to do two things. We need to allow people who would otherwise be in line to go into the private world and get served and be have it be paid for. Secondly, we, have, we need some enhanced ability to fire people. And that was something that, 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 that Senator Sanders also uh, supported. And so the new deal, the new bill is going to cost uh, half a billion dollars um, and it's going to have some of these new powers. But, the, but, but none of this 
gets the job done. It's, it's new people. It's changing the mindset of one of the biggest uh, uh, agencies in government, but at least, uh, at least it's a start. But Carl Tubin? This has been going on, first of all, since... This has been, this has been going on, first of all, since 1996. So this is not a new problem. Uh, Rick Weidman told you last week that we've been dealing with this incessantly on these lists since 2003. A lot of the senior, the SES people who get the bonuses went to some of these people and said, uh, make these lists as, as small as possible so I can get a larger bonus. And they've been doing that for years. They've been taking money away from patient care uh, and, and doing cut, making all sorts of cutbacks so they would get big bonuses. The bonuses have now been suspended <clears throat> at this point, and a lot of harm has been done. There have been provisions in bills which allowed the VA to use outside doctors, and they haven't used it. They, they didn't want to use it. They wanted that money for all kinds of other things. The VA, for years, has not had adequate accountability. But, but, but you have a situation right now Bob Hines, where the acting the, the acting Secretary of Veterans Affairs, uh, Sloan Gibson, who himself a, a noted uh, Army officer, he comes from a long line of, of heroic Army officers, uh, he's coming into a situation where, as he discovered, there were over a hundred thousand times where the the audit trail of veterans were not being able to get their initial consoles were just pushed under the rug. That that that's on the OIG report. That's huge. He's got a he's got a horrible job in front of him in trying to clean up what is already becoming a bad, bad mess. But he has he has Talk one advantage. Now. He has he one has advantage, advantage over the, uh, the people that have come before him. And that is, people are focused on this. As Carl said, this has been going on for years. Uh, it, it has been uh, not even whispered about, openly spoken about, that the VA was an incompetent agency. And nobody did anything about it. Now, everybody has uh, glommed onto it as a, you know, the issue of the day, and they well should. Uh, and it's going to get some attention, and it's going to make it a lot easier for whoever is heading that agency to get things done than it did uh, Dushecki, who, you know, nobody was paying any attention. But, but wait a minute. Dan Lipner is kind of rolling his head back and forth. Sloan Gibson, the acting secretary, said 100,000 veterans were kept off of medical appointment lists. Right, and, and, and that is a tragedy. But nobody's hands are clean on this, let's be clear. After decades of the VA trying to be made more efficient, shutting down facilities, make, making the system more efficient, the VA was utterly unprepared for the two wars that we are in. And those, these two wars that they were utterly unprepared for, and there's plenty of bureaucracy to complain about, and uh, Senator Sanders' proposal is definitely a good start. That said, it's also not an issue of money. 
it's the it's the issue of the the entire infrastructure not being able to support it. There's already been some suggestion that the, going going to private healthcare facilities is not going to solve the problem because the private facilities, as if you go make it a little bit more macro, are already overwhelmed where these where these soldiers where these veterans are already. But you're, so talking they, about, they but you're, talking about, you're talking about putting them into a privatized system like TRICARE, and you ask any member of the military, and they'll tell you TRICARE is horrible, and oh, by the way, let's burn it now with now, a million more people. Right, but let's also be clear here. Prior to the wars, these two wars, VA healthcare was actually very highly regarded by the veterans who got their service. This is a no, new sir, problem. No, 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 but you said the key word there. Veterans who got the services, 100,000 people weren't even considered for right, service. Right, and this is a, this is the the system is clearly overwhelmed for being unprepared. And 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 as as much faith as I have in these army officers have been put on top of to, to lead this agency because they obviously have such huge vested interests. However, there's also the need for true administrators that can actually put this system through to actually make it work to get these soldiers and sailors and the airmen the as well as the Marines, the services that they have earned through their service. <laughs> Alan yeah, Moore. So, and maybe Carl can help here because he knows more about this stuff uh, certainly than than, uh, than the rest of us. But I, I don't think that the problem today at the VA is the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. It's the Vietnam guys who are now just pouring in later in life with these chronic illnesses and diseases that has overwhelmed the system. These aren't the new guys. They will be the problem down the road. And certainly some, the, ones, the ones with the immediate really serious needs are, are often treated in regular military facilities. Um, but they're going to be the problem tomorrow. I think the problem today, though, is more anticipatable than, than you're acknowledging. But Carl, tell me if I'm wrong about no, no, that. You're right. The, the, the big thing, <clears throat> the... Um, the Agent Orange people from Vietnam are now getting all these different kinds of diseases which have just been put on the books in the last three, five years, and they are getting in, into the uh, system. Uh, let me say one thing about Sanders' first bill. <clears throat> Mikulski stopped that bill, and she stopped it because he wanted to take the money, the $20 billion, out of a some obscure um, um, uh, account, which was an international account, and she didn't want to do that. So she and and some Republican senators went along with her. How can a, how can twenty billion dollars be an unknown account? <laughs> well, that's what I don't understand. Hey, Carl, we love. Trust me, I know about a hundred congressmen that would love to know that account. Well, yeah. Winning billion dollars. Hey, Congressman Al. Cool. Congressman Al, do you know, why it was how do you hide $20 billion? Hey, hey Congressman Al, do you, do you know where the slush fund of $20 billion is? I'll tell you, this, this program's sounding more and more like McLaughlin and company. Uh, I, I, I couldn't hear any of you because you were all talking at once. Uh, Yes, I think every congressman would like to find some way to build a highway that would be named after him, but that's not going to happen. You mean there's not going to be an Al Swift bridge in Washington's 2nd District? Well, remember that bridge that fell down in my district about a year ago? Yeah. Uh, they, they, they rebuilt it. I drove over it while I was gone, and you know, 
They hadn't changed the name of it at all. <laughs> you didn't write your name in the cement? Is that when it was drying? One, one, last, one last point. The biggest problem is that when General Sinseki took over the VA, Rick Weidman and other, some other people from the Veterans Service Organization, and they have a meeting once a month, they told him that he was going to get bad advice from those around him. And he didn't believe them. And this, this was part of the problem. They kept going into him, and they kept telling him things that were wrong. And his, his folks said, that's not right. Don't listen to that. But bottom line is there's a bigger problem here. There's, I mean, there, there, there is stuff that if you read the OIG and GAO report that border on criminal, such as in the Phoenix, in the Phoenix situation, it is because it is falsifying government records is a crime. Oh, okay, all right. I mean, but 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 the the instance I'm talking about is the electronic healthcare system known as Vista inside the VA was supposed to streamline all these processes as well as give the OIG and the secretary an audit trail, a usable audit trail to see how effective they were doing. In the instance of Phoenix, and it's coming out that there may be other facilities, there are people that went into Vista and disabled the audit trail mechanism, knowingly, apparently in Phoenix, and said, ah, we got it, we got it, we got the other, we got the other old-fashioned paperwork we can use in trial. Bob Hines, we have yet to see anybody being either called into question, indicted, or fired as a result of just that one instance alone. It doesn't bother me that nobody has identified them yet. Right. It'll bother me if nobody has identified these, this, these people, let's say, in another six or eight weeks. These, this is the, these administrators are the kind of people who have caused the problem. Right. And they're underlings. Yeah, right? and they are, they are higher, high enough up to be able to get away with but it. But you're talking about... Deputy administrators, you're talking about system administrators, right. you're talking about people from the GS-14 level onto right. SDSs, yes. right. which, by the way, in federal government, those are senior management positions. Right. Yeah. Those are positions of responsibility and public trust. Right. Those people we have not seen, and the hope is yeah. that they well, will the be called. They've changed, they've got some laws passed, Congress, the House passed the law so that it makes it easier to get to these people. And, and we have, VBA and some other service organizations have asked for federal uh, uh, U.S. attorneys to get in and investigate some of these things. These are the people that, that can have, a, have the ability to screw the system up, to right. hide things. Right. And these are the people we've got to go after. And again, it goes, and get every one of them out. Again, it goes from the upper level people saying, screw this up, so I'll get a bigger bonus. Yeah. And that was known to us the system that this was happening. But when you look at the OIG report, for example, and you talk about the, uh, you know, the culpability of some of the people there, I mean, the OIG report focused on, you know, did the electronic wait list purposely emit names of veterans waiting for care, and if so, in whose direction? Whose direction that came from, that person should be gone. On top of the fact is 
Let's be clear. Should be prosecuted, not be just prosecuted. gone. Prosecuted. Yeah, when I say gone, I'm talking about locked up. I'm talking about prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. How about hung from tree? Well, uh, we try not to do that anymore, Bob. But <laughs> well, that's I think it's okay. a good idea to bring it back. Uh, we can refill Guantanamo with yes. it. Yes, yeah, but, but really, you got to bring Guantanamo to this, Dan. <laughs> we missed you so much, Daniel. We really missed you a lot, Daniel. But there, but again, when you also look at you know the question of the deaths. The OIG, in their results, stated that, wait a minute, we, we found that the deaths of veterans were directly relatable to being admitted off of the wait list, which we had kind of speculated, but now the VA itself in its own OIG report is saying that. And Congressman Al, you know, as yep. a former member of Congress, when you hear this type of gross mismanagement, we're, we're seeing a lot of band-aids coming out of Congress. What we're not seeing is a definitive rule coming out of Congress saying that this is how we're going to prevent this in the future. Well, I think you're going to see that coming now because uh, everybody will want to rush to the front of the line to, to solve the problem. Where they have been while the problem was developing, uh, no one knows, but uh, probably hiding behind the tree over there. Uh, I, I think that <clears throat> I, I think that uh, they should look. There, this is not the only agency that everybody knows is, you know, kind of moving around. But it's, they're not sexy. This has suddenly become sexy, and I think. Uh, while Congress loves to point fingers and shout insults at the administration, and by this I'm not talking about the Obama administration, but the administration of the VA, while they love to do that, they certainly uh, aren't acknowledging that they have any guilt in this whole affair themselves. And their oversight on this uh, agency has been horrible. Alan Moore. Yeah, in, in thinking what Al is talking about here, it's just it's kind of this reminder that uh, when even there are when there are tens of billions of dollars at play, and there are are veterans at play, we can still screw it up. And it reminds us to be a little bit humble about thinking that government with enough money can get stuff done and get it done in the right way. You know, you know, you know, Carl Tuvin. When they made the VA, we brought the subject up last week, but when they made the VA a cabinet-level position, it was the idea of giving the stature of the secretary the president here. It was designed to throw more money at a growing veterans population that needed continuous health care, and it failed on all fronts. If, if you talk to some of the people who have my friends who I work with, who use the VA, they'll tell you that it's a good system. But these are people who were registered in the VA and began to help Apparently, they're years. not one of the 100,000 that no, were omitted weren't. off of a waiting list. No, they list. weren't. No, they weren't. This was this is basically some of the newer people and some of the Vietnam vets who, who have come into the system. The thing I wanted to mention, Al is absolutely right. Uh, Senator McCain was very, very cool on some of the ideas that Senator Saunders had put in his first bill. A few days ago, well, probably last week, Senator McCain went to Saunders, Sanders and said, let's sit down 
we've got to really put something together. And they are working on a bill I now. Do, I, I do want to commend, I, I want to commend Senator San, Sanders, because Sa Senator Sanders has broken away from all caucuses on this subject. And is, well, let me rephrase this. He is caucusing with both sides right. of the aisle on this. Right. And I want to commend Senator McCain as well for being open and being honest about the fact that this is not a R or D situation. This is a national tragedy that we owe this to them. They gave up, in some instances, limbs, vital organs, and got, health, got health conditions that were forced upon them as part of their service. We owe it to them. I got to commend them for actually being open and upfront and taking this and trying not to politicize that because there are some in Congress on both sides that are trying to politicize veterans' health issues, which is an abomination in my view. That's just my take. So uh, with that, we're obviously going to be monitoring this. We're going to see fallout, more fallout. There are more committee hearings scheduled as a result of the latest OIG and GAO reports. We'll keep you advised. When we come back, we were going to talk about uh, the children in crisis down the southern border and in Pakistan. Next week, we're announcing that we have a representative for the World Health Organization from the UN joining us next week to talk about the situation in children and the children's health on both the southern border here in the United States and in Pakistan and Syria. But instead, we've decided we're going to talk about Secretary Clinton's broke and how broke is she. That's next on Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of fat waller. Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's back room. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town yeah.
but it'll take me to get around, no. Tell the mailman not to call. Ain't coming home until the fall. And then again, I might not get home at all. Soon back in town. Oh, that woman's back in town. Oh, my, 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 my. And we're back and we're back here live at Shelly's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, for our final segment, we're going to have to talk about, and, and by the way, during the break, we, we had a hat, and we were passing it around the table, taking collections for the Clinton family. Uh, according to Senator Hillary Clinton, uh, former Secretary of State, former First Lady of the, of the United States, um, when they left the White House, they were broke. They were broker than broke. They had more debt than income, and uh, we are to feel sorry for Hillary and for Bill because they are just poor white trailer trash, apparently, from Arkansas. Yeah. Um, Wait, let's, did you see where Bill grew up? Let's, what, let's, what's that? You, did you see where Bill grew up? Let's make all sure. The more reason, <laughs> all the more reason I'm not feeling bad for Hillary right now in her, in her you know, million-dollar house in Chappaqua saying that, okay, that's a far cry from Hope, Arkansas, kid. Yeah. Let's be real. But, yeah. Dan Lipner, we've missed you. How do you justify Hillary Clinton saying that she was broke? When they left the White House in 2000, you might all remember there are a handful of investigations that happened during the Clinton years. Mm -hmm. There's a name we haven't heard in a while, Ken Starr. Okay. Independent, of, former independent counsel. Those investigations which yielded almost nothing. Uh, You're talking about. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Stop. Uh, nice just, try. Nice try. He's throwing that impeachment. Yes. Yeah. 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 Let's talk about Articles the fact that of impeachment. I, I would venture to say and, that and, we got our money's worth. And a trial. Yeah. Wait, got our money's worth. No, no. Yes, there was a trial, and you got your money's worth for, I don't know. I, I'm not entirely certain. I believe the number is $15 million as much Ken Starr spends on the taxpayers' dollars uh, on the investigation and prosecution. The president should have lied! The president shouldn't have lied! Are we, are we really going to, to no, 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 relitigate? No, no, no. no, 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 no if you really want to relitigate the, the spending $15 million over a dalliance, the spending of $15 million taxpayer dollars on a dalliance in the Oval Office with an intern. That, and by the way, lying about it not, under oh, oath. Thank you very yes, much. You brought it up. Technically, he didn't lie about it. But that. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 Dan, I want to go. Do you want to go there? Do you want to come back to? No, I want to go. All right, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Congressman Al. Yes. Congressman Al, you were a member of Congress during the impeachment. Uh, yeah, yeah. You sat in the House during the trial. No. Yep. Uh, no. What? The trial is in the Senate. I'm sorry. I'm, so, I'm sorry. You, you sat in the House when they brought the charges. The articles of, the articles of impeachment. That's forward. right. And, and, and I had retired by the time the trial took place. Okay. So um, with that in mind, Hillary Clinton is now claiming she's broke because she had to defend against articles of impeachment because her husband lied under oath to federal investigators and congressional investigators. Uh, do you feel sorry for Hillary Clinton's brokenness? Well, first of all, 
uh, I feel sorry that we are even approaching this this way. Uh, this is this is old news. Uh, it's been hashed over over and over again. Uh, I believe they were broke when they left. They have uh, become very rich since because they're popular and they uh, give good speeches. Uh, but trying to go back and and uh, whip them now is, uh, I think, uh, partisan and uh, inappropriate. Oh, Al, Al, Congressman Al has given his opinion. However, Alan Moore has the counter. So, yeah, no, here's the thing, Al. As you know, she's uh, Hillary Clinton's written this book. Um, the, the, the early reviews on it for advanced copies are not very good, but that's okay. She's trying to keep her name out there, have her say about what's happened over the last eight years, and, and a few other things. Fair enough. Uh, I'm the only one at the table, I think, who believes that in the end of the day she will not run for president, but I really also don't believe she's decided yet. She wants to keep that alive opportunity for herself. This was a self-inflicted wound that in, in a statement with mm -hmm. Diane Sawyer where she, she simply said, you know, you have to remember, Diane, when we left the, uh, the White House, we were dead broke. We had, we had huge debts, which is true. Twelve and, million and, dollars. And, and twelve wasn't million 12. dollars. It wasn't actually twelve, but it's a lot of money. And 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 we had to figure out how to put together the money to pay for our houses, not just one, of course, not even two. I think they've got an apartment in in, in, Manhattan. in, in Manhattan as well. Our houses and our daughters' of very expensive private school tuitions in uh, and and we we have a guaranteed income right now of only about $330,000, and I've got an $8 million book deal, um, but it, she's backed way away from it. It was, we're just sort of having fun with the fact that she made this mistake because, because we're going to be hearing, she's going to be seeing this if she does choose to run for office. She can understand. That clip about being dead broke and 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 being able to her husband could make up to 500,000 or more per per speech she's now pulling down 200 per speech the the whole charge here is that as with Mitt Romney she she's doesn't get touch. it anymore she doesn't connect well, that brings up a good to question. true problems that people have I want to bring who this up. are not only dead broke but don't have some fixed income for life and who don't have any place to turn, who can't borrow okay, millions hold on, of hold dollars. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Congressman Al, regardless, yes. of her statement, regardless of her statement, is this a sign that since she was a uh, Secretary of State, since she's been out of the administration, out of the White House, and out of the Senate, that Hillary Clinton, as some in her party and on the, our side have said, she's rusty politically? Is this just her being politically rusty and that she's going to have to own this back in to be the big political machine that she once was? No, I don't think she's rusty. I think that uh, the Republicans are uh, slicker than a snot on a marble doorknob, and uh, they are going to pick anything that they possibly can to uh, to try and savage or even dig up something uh, like this. This is as unimportant as anything I have ever heard in a presidential race. It's just ridiculous. Carl Tubin. This was this was now this was something 
she, I don't think she was expecting that question, <clears throat> and it, I think she re kind of really spoke her mind. She came on this morning on TV, uh, and she talked about the fact that <clears throat> all her life she has been dedicated to helping people and build people up. And uh, the comment was made that he came from a very poor background. Um, uh, they, they had, she was going into the Senate. She didn't, she didn't have a salary at that point for a few weeks. And, uh, <laughs> January of this year, she said in an interview that she had not driven a car since 1996. Because they had drivers. <laughs> right. Yeah. So she needed the car <laughs> and the driver. I would think that every person at this table, if we all put our assets together, would say, geez, we're about one third of the way up the... <laughs> if that, yeah, if, if, if you're that. using that level as saying you're broke... Yeah. I want oh, my yeah. food stamps. Yeah, that's a wonderful situation. I'd love it at these. But, but, <laughs> well, let me just say, because Al may not have, this was this hour-long interview that she did last night, Al, with, with Diane Sawyer, and it was all over the news this morning. It wasn't Republicans who were jumping on this. This was a lot of her fans in the media who were saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. She stepped in it. She's got to fix this. She's got to say, we've been blessed. We have been so fortunate and so lucky, and we have this this challenging period there for a little while. And she's now made that clarification. Dan Lipner. But she didn't do well last night. Dan Lipner, do you believe, do you honestly believe that in one of their multi-million dollar homes, let's use Chappaqua as one, that the chefs that they hired to prepare their meals were giving them government Velveeta cheese as part of this? Or am I wrong in this? I have no doubt. I have no idea, and what's more important, neither do you. <laughs> <laughs> Congressman Al, let me, I'm sure that the Clintons did not go down to the Westchester County Food Bank to get government-subsidized Velveeta cheese to have their chefs prepare Le Coco Van with. I think that was cut in the last act, Bill. So I don't oh, well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All the butter you can eat. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Bill's a vegan now, so he doesn't. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he's got to eat government-subsidized arugula. So <laughs> that's even better. Congressman Alda, though, you have to admit, though, you, you have to admit, though, that, I mean, and she is backing down. And, and, I, and I also want to point out that, yes, when you are the target of such a large legal defense as they had to put up, as a result of the impeachment, as a result of other legal issues, they were still paying off Whitewater defense. They were still paying off uh, the impeachment. They're still paying off other legal defenses that they had to put up with. That does take a tax on your personal finances. But Congressman Al, you have to admit, though, that for her to say we were broker than broke just is completely out of touch with reality. 
Poor wording. Very poor wording. Yes. <clears throat> I'm going to predict that we never hear the words dead broke from her lips. No. Again. again. No. No. If we do, look, we're look, all she, Look. She did not say she was broke now. She did not say that at all. And essentially what you're doing is, take, is, is taking and moving the time period in which uh, they are clearly very wealthy uh, <clears throat> back to when she was, uh, you know, when, when they were having uh, some financial problems. Uh, it's, it's silly. It's partisan. It's uh, uh, undignified and I think unworthy of political discussion. Oh, Al, 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 you're such an apologist. They, he had a lifetime pension worth the cabinet level, levels, uh, leaders' pay, cabinet members' pay. She had just been elected to the Senate, and she had just signed an $8 million book deal. He signed his $15 million book deal a few months later. That's the time she a was few months later. About. That's the time a she few was months later. About. And these, these debts they had were not lawyers uh, with, with, with process servers trying to uh, attach their funds. They had a couple of million dollars in assets. They had debts that they wanted to pay off. No huge pressure. It's not poor people who are able to borrow eight, to eight or ten or whatever it is, million dollars of legal fees. She will uh, not make the mistake. Not. She won't make the mistake again, but she did make the mistake. Yeah, and, and by the way, uh, Bob Hines is also claiming that he is dead broke. Uh, <laughs> Bob, Bob Hines has medical bills to pay, and, and Bob Hines just can't survive, and we're going to be passing the hat for Bob Hines today. Uh, broken septic system. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 Gail, and Gail's operation. Gail's operation, operation was a success. Good. Congratulations, Thank by the God way. God, she doesn't God. have to go to the VA. It's because of those legal bills, the Clintons were forced to keep working and not continue into retirement. And just fade off okay. in the sunset like whatever they Let's wanted. Do. Okay, Dan, oh, Dan, oh, right. wow. oh, yeah, with their DNA. Yeah, yeah. They wanted they wanted to fade fade out the way Superman wants to lose his cake. No way, baby. <laughs> no way. I, I have to tell you that uh, listening to it from where I am, this sounds like a bunch of junior high school bullies that are picking on the little girl that walked by, and. It, Laughing and roaring and distorting and uh, you know I, I I just think it's unworthy of our program. Oh wow! Oh Al Al, wait a minute. Let me let me say this. Al, as much as as much as I appreciate that, you have to admit, and, and we and we put this in here to have fun with it because the reality is, it is it, it the, the the political reality is is that if she does have aspirations to become president, what do you mean if if, if she has it, uh, okay. It, now that she has aspirations to possibly become president, now that she has put out <clears throat> this book, which opens up her life to public scrutiny or public appreciation, look, I, I think that she did a, a solid job as Secretary of State. I think she did a good job in representing the constituents in the state of New York as the junior senator of New York. I have a lot of respect for Hillary and for Bill. The reality is, though, that when, when a political finesse couple like the Clintons and somebody as politically finesse as Hillary has 
you cannot tell me that this coming out is a demonstration of their political astuteness and that we call on this because we want her to be in check. We want her to say stuff that shows that she's in touch with the rest of America, especially if she wants to be the next commander-in-chief. I am not impressed. <laughs> let, let me just say that I am, so, I am so pleased to see the populist sentiment around this table that a true working-class person needs to be in the White House. I'm certain you will all be supporting just that kind of person as the next nominee. You know what? You're right. I want to see a working-class federal attorney, now governor of New Jersey, become the next president of the United States. There, I said I'd, it. I'd love to see him never on the Republican point. I'd love to see him on the Republican ticket. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. But with that, normally this would be our section that we talk about, my favorite part of the show, Tell Me a Story. But joining us now is, is a, a good friend of the show. Uh, she uh, uh, she is uh, Catherine Aguirre. She is with Maya Selva Cigars out of Hollywood, Florida. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Catherine, um, the, re the reason why we want to have you on is because the, the story of the cigars, your story, is fascinating to us. First, we'll, we'll talk about the cigars second, but you are originally from France? I am originally from Honduras. Honduras, okay. Yes. How does a girl from Latin America in Honduras get from there to now being an executive with a cigar company here in the United States? Opportunity. Opportunity. Tell us about the opportunity. Opportunity. Being open-minded to opportunity and meeting wonderful people who open those doors for you. Uh, I started out as a, uh, actually, a, a social sciences. I, I studied international relations at Tufts University went home, worked uh, in-country for a while, and decided to travel the world and haven't, uh, haven't really returned since. Lived, lived in a bunch of different places, Europe, uh, Washington, D.C., moved to Hawaii for a little while, and then I had the opportunity, speaking of, of working with this company, that I've uh, known about for many years. I have, I, I have a great fondness for the business, and... Uh, is this something that was in your family? Did you come from a tobacco family in Honduras? I did not, actually. Tobacco is very, very close to the heart of all agriculture in Honduras. It has a long history in Honduras. Uh, it can be traced back to the time of the Mayas in Honduras. So I do like to say that all of us Hondurans have a little bit of tobacco in our, in our background. Uh, this this gave me the opportunity to work with something close to my heart, which is, which is, you know, not only being Honduran, but being able to work uh, with a product of the land, because in essence, tobacco is an agricultural product. How important is the cigar trade in relation to the Nicaraguan or the Honduran? I'm sorry, the Honduran economy. Very, very important. At this point, it ranks number four as uh, the, the, um, the product that is the highest export product in Honduras. Um, so it is very important, not only, in term, not only in financial terms, but also in jobs. And focusing on the, on the job sector, it also provides, it's one of the biggest providers of employment opportunity 
for females as well, which is very really? important. Really? To, yeah. And these are, and these are, these are sustainable, high-paying jobs for Honduran females? Yes, and the way that we track that has a lot to do with how long they stay with the company, um, what sort of advances that they make, not only in their home, but how their children advance, what sort of level of education they receive. Um, another big indicator uh, is how many of those children choose to stay in the town as they grow up instead of leaving to find a better job. A lot of the kids actually grow up and go into the industry because they have had such a positive experience watching their parents develop in this industry. There's a lot of potential for growth and uh, to make something of yourself. Now, you know, obviously being in the cigar industry, you're familiar with the fact that there are sectors of government that have tried to put on what we would call sin taxes on the premium cigars. <coughs> uh, the District of Columbia, where we broadcast from, at one point was talking about putting an 80% syntax on premium cigars. The federal government, the FDA, is trying to regulate humidors and the FDA is trying to regulate premium cigars as a regulated product. Uh, is that something that concerns you as an executive in the cigar industry? It, it concerns me a lot. Unfortunately, I am quite aware of, of the legislation that is, that is currently affecting us and that's also on the table. It's something that we monitor very closely. And we, we within the industry are we're like family. It doesn't, you know, when it comes to, to brands, we, we, we have no competition when it comes to legislation. We all join together because there's a whole unseen background to where the cigars are coming from and the understanding, the difference between a, a premium handmade product versus something that is machine made. Huge, just worlds of difference. Is, it, is this a situation that if, if, if the FDA enacted this legislation, if the District of Columbia, as well as other states who have done this, put these sin taxes, this is something that has a direct impact on the economy of your native Honduras. Yes, and I have a good example for you. When production is high the way that it's been in the last two years, which is some of the highest production levels that we have experienced, we are able to employ people full-time year-round. When we have lower production levels, what will end up happening is there will be full-time staff for a certain part of the year and then they are unfortunately left to find some other source of income for the remaining months out of the year. So when it is not a, an industry that can be relied upon, people start leaving. So I know that you were speaking earlier about, for example, that the problem with the migration of children. And that's something that, that we do monitor because we want to provide a source of income outside of the major cities, especially in the agricultural area, where people feel that there is a sense of hope and opportunity, that they can grow up there and that they can make a living there without having to leave and change their family structure. Now, uh, we got four minutes left, Catherine. I want to talk about Maya Silva Cigars. It is a new brand here in the United States. It's not one that I personally heard of until our host here at Shelley's, Bob Monterazzi, had said that he was going to be the exclusive purveyor of Maya Silva cigars. But in talking to you earlier, this is a brand that's worldwide known, just not prominent here in the U.S. That's correct. We're, we're uh, the, the uh, world's most awarded brand that nobody's heard of. <laughs> kind of like our talk show. <laughs> yes. It's the best political talk show nobody's heard of. 
So, so I completely understand, but we're not going to be a secret for much longer. The company has been in business for almost 20 years, selling mostly in Europe and in Asia. And we've been in business in the United States for about 10 months. So those, of, those who do know who we are are very excited. We have seen uh, exponential growth since we began, and, and, and this is our first foray into uh, Washington, D.C. So we're, we're very uh, excited to have our product available here at Shelley's. And, uh, I gotta say so. I'm I, as you're speaking. I'm lighting up a uh, Villa Zamorana. Correct. Yes. And and, and I gotta tell you so. This is a fantastic cigar. Why, I'm, thank I'm, you. I'm, I'm shocked that nobody's ever heard of that. Um, in the in the three minutes left, um, when when you talk about the growth into the U.S. market for cigars, for example, it seems like an awfully crowded market. How are you guys gonna di differentiate yourselves? from the other larger premium brands, you know, such as Fuentes, uh, Davidoff, the well-known brands that we see all the time? Relationships. It's, uh, it's, it's quite simple that way. Building relationships not only with the, the people who sell our cigars, but with the fans themselves. We want to be able to put a face behind the cigar that you're smoking so that when you shake someone's hand, you can say, this is, this is the person who made this cigar, who put this recipe together, who goes to Honduras and Nicaragua every single season and make sure that the quality control is spot on, that it's available in your local store. So we start creating those little threads that join people that, that, that uh, really exemplify the family environment of of the cigar world. And tomorrow night you're having an event here at Shelley's, mm -hmm. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., a joint uh, a, a joint event with the Honduran Embassy. They will also have representatives here. And you'll be almost unveiling your cigar to the national capital region, it sounds like, right? We will. Be, we'll be here from 6.30 to 9.30. And we'll be offering our entire line of Flor de Selva. This is our premier brand. It's 100% Honduran. Uh, long filler tobacco. It's just an absolutely gorgeous line. We've, we've got quite a, a few different cigars for everyone to come out and try. So I, I, I do recommend it. It's going to be a very fun evening. That's fantastic. Well, listen, Catherine Arcacera with, uh, uh, with uh, Florida Silva, we, we, we appreciate you coming on the show. We appreciate the cigars. If you're around town tomorrow night, come on by Shelly's tomorrow at 6 o'clock. Come out for the event. Great drinks, great cigars, good time had by all. Catherine, again, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Justin. Uh, and with that, it's time to go. On behalf of Bob Hines, welcome back, Dan Lipner, back to the fold. The Honorable Alan Moore, Carl Tuvin. Hey, Congressman, do you miss us yet? Uh, yes, I miss you a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking, we're looking to have you back here come next back. week, Al. Yeah. yeah, come back next week. Tune in next week to see how much Al appreciates us then. But this is back, this is backroom politics live. Shelley's backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington D.C. The place to be. Absolutely, Bob. We'll see you next week. Come on by tomorrow. And by the way, check out our Kickstarter program. We can always use 48 hours left. We got to hit that 3,000 mark. We'll see you next week, folks. Bye bye.